Assalamu alaikum everyone. Hello and welcome to another episode of Easter podcast series. Easter is a platform that aims at cherishing intellectual knowledge by expanding horizons of Islamic sciences together with uh, social sciences. And my name is Tugay Tashi and I'll be hosting this program for you. I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, today we'll listen to a distinguished Ottoman historian, Dr. Yakub Ahmed, on the necessity of studying Ottoman history as an intellectual his- is- Islamic history and what kind of challenges are we confronted on the way. So Dr. Yakub Ahmed is a PhD graduate of the Department of Languages and Cultures, School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He also graduated from the same institution with a master's degree in Near and Middle Eastern Studies with a focus on Ottoman history and Turkish politics. His research focuses are late Ottoman history, Muslim intellectual thought in the 19th and 20th century, Islamic constitutionalism, and ulama Sulaim. Uh, Dr. Yaqub Ahmed, uh, without further ado, thank you for joining uh, on us, joining us today. Welcome to the program. We are very glad to have you. Uh, first of all, thank you for accepting our request and joining our podcast. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Assalamualaikum. salam. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to you know, uh, expand the discussion and start with the first question. Sure. So be- before starting with the question, I'd like to ask, paraphrase uh, Ibn Khaldun mm. as a starting sure. point. Sure. So um, Ibn Khaldun once explained in, in his Kitab al-Ibar, also known mm. the necessity of writing history for future mm. generation, and why right. Muslims in particular were required to do so in order to maintain Islam as a discursive tradition. Mm-hmm. So for Ibn Khaldun, the writing of history was to establish that which was the truth, which is known in Arabic as Izharul Haq, uh, mm-hmm. Izharul Hakika in Ottoman mm-hmm. Turkish as well. Mm-hmm. Or at least come to come closer to it. Uh, basically mm-hmm. a principle of Islam that every scholar encouraged mm-hmm. to subscribe and aspire to. Mm-hmm. I think it was this research for the third that Ibn Khaldun stresses that the writing of history ought to be a part of Islamic sciences and tradition. Mm-hmm. And he further argued that history writing was in fact an aspect of philosophy. Right. So without further ado, mm-hmm. uh, taking off from that position in the Haldun hat, with your permission, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask my first question. Sure, please. Um, what makes Ottoman history an Islamic history and why should Muslims across the globe show a particular interest in studying it? Thank you very much. Um, that is a great question. I mean, I mean Ibn Haldun, uh, or Ibn Khaldun, if you're going to say in Arabic, I mean, um, was a visionary in many ways. I mean, he recognized uh, the necessity of not only understanding, I mean, I think there's an impression from Khaldunian thought that human beings generally um, follow particular patterns in the way that they do things. Yeah. And Ibn Khaldun in particular um, was probably under the impression, I can't prove this, but from what I understand of his work, that human beings are human beings, irrespective of what period of time they're in. True. Now, um, we may have better technology now, or we may have a different way of living life, and yeah. we'll, we can talk about the, the exception, which is modernity. Yeah. But even in Khaldunian thought, the idea is, is that human beings are sedentary, human beings are civilizational, human beings will go to war, human beings are state builders or government builders in that context. And in that sense, he sort of understood these sort of meta questions of how to construct state and society. True. And in, in, in that sense, Ibn Khaldun becomes very important because he recognizes that 
there's so many lessons we can learn from peoples of the past that there's so many lessons that Muslims can learn from their own experiences. True. Not only that, I mean, you, you asked the question of the discursive tradition, right? Yeah. And in that sense, I think this becomes very important in yeah. terms of understanding how Islamic civilization has evolved and how that discursive tradition has continuously been um, going through these transitional moments. Yeah. The idea is what's remained of the discursive tradition and what has evolved and how has it evolved. Um, so, in some degree, um, I think that's significant for us to understand because human beings have very short memories. That's and that's true. what I liked about Ibn Khaldun in that context. And I think that can be applicable now, no doubt. That is true. Uh, so, considering the Muslim uh, interest in mm. the Ottoman history, so mm. uh, what is your thought on that? Especially because like, there's been an increasing uh, interest in Ottoman studies, both in the West and in other parts of the world, like from subaltern, yeah. uh, you know, Asia and some other places and especially the right. you know um the interest has been somehow like triggered again i think the i think the interest being triggered again has been great i think there's yeah. a multiplicity of factors of why that's happened no doubt popular tv shows have helped in, in, in that sense but i think personally i think there was an upward curve prior to the tv show and to some degree i think the tv show is a reflection of the popularity that was happening of Ottoman studies anyway. Okay. I think um, to some degree, we started to notice um, um, a translation of ideas regarding Ottoman history by Ottoman historians in, yeah. in other spaces. True. Um, so in, Tur in Turkey, as you know, um, prior to Didelish, we had um, the TV show of uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. Yeah. And that was very popular in Turkey. Contrary to what people might think outside, that wasn't only popular in Turkey, that was popular in Iran and it was popular in parts of South America. And that was, I remember many Turks asking me, to what degree was that historically accurate? I mean, and that was <laughs> trained within a particular process in mm. the sense that there's a lot of information on Suleiman as Khamenei. Yeah. Um, I think, however, um, I think much of Ottoman studies, contemporary Ottoman studies anyway, is related to. Um, foreign policy in the region as well. Okay. Um, human beings might change and evolve, but uh, it, it's attached to the nature of what's happening in the region. And I think even in, in Western societies, um, governments and so forth, um, in the Balkans, whether it be North Africa or the Arab speaking world or Turkey, there's so much of the transitions that have happened in the region are still attached to an Ottoman past. And less we can say that right now, let's look at Ayasofya. That's, yeah. a, that's a typical example <laughs> of, of the way that emotions have been felt in regards to an Ottoman uh, past and how that's galvanized a particular understanding. So in that sense, um, I think the TV shows have helped, no doubt, um, in terms of popularizing this imagination of the Ottomans. I think the TV shows have their own problems, but, yeah. th you know, um, but I think there was an upward curve towards Ottoman studies. My concern is, or was, was the defunding of the history departments in Western academia to some degree, would be to the detriment of the learning of Ottoman studies for Muslims around the world. Um, Turkey, to some degree, because Ottoman studies is so entrenched in its identity, will always maintain the Ottoman tradition to some degree. But Muslims are not privy to that. So um, that, that, that's been a situation. I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but the question I, I'm assuming is, you know, why would Ottoman history be important? I mean, 
I think we have to ask ourselves the question, are the Ottomans as a dynasty, entity, domain, or empire, whatever you want to call them, an exception to other Muslim dynasties and empires in any shape or form, vis-a-vis -vis Islam, the tradition of Islam, and so forth, or are they just like anyone else? If they're an exception, I think we should know about that, or why are they an exception? If they're not the exception, and they're just the norm, just like everyone else, then they belong to an elite group of Islamic history, which we should know about. So either way, we should know about it. It's yeah. been relegated to some degree. I right? totally agree because, like, if you look at the Muslim dynasties, like, let's take an example of like Umayyads or Abbasids, right. and they only ruled like a couple of hundred years. Not some of them, right. like, you know, less than that. And when yeah. it comes to Ottomans, like, they have been for good reason, like, four hundred years caliphate in the sense yeah. that, you know, they had a lot of connection with both Istanbul and Cairo, Yemen, let's say yeah. India, Pakistan, and like yeah. uh, some other places. So in that sense, uh, I think Ottoman history should be more relevant to the Muslims around the world than uh, totally. in, ter like, in terms of its uniqueness, because 400 years of caliphate is not necessarily, you know. Well, you know, for me, for example, look, I can understand if people don't know about Babur. Or, yeah. I, or, or I can understand if people don't know about the, you know, Muslims in Timbuktu. I understand that yeah. that can happen. But what I don't understand can happen is 600 years of investment of history in this region and 400 years of caliphate as a central, not a central power of Muslim authority, yeah. the central power of Muslim authority, you know, with Muslims penetrating Europe. I mean, it's, I mean even the Spanish Inquisition, when you think, about that it has an ottoman connection in the sense that they they start to get nervous of the ottoman expansion into europe and start getting agitated of their own muslim subjects so in that sense you know i mean without sounding harsh here but much of european identity not ottoman identity european identity is being based on church and state separation and the muslims are coming who are the muslims the ottomans that's true so to not know any of this and to not understand that colonialism, to some degree, has a, a history in regards to a world in which the Ottomans were a center of resistance to that colonialism. I mean, the, I mean the, 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 we should the, be no the, better. The blind spot regarding Ottoman history is mm -hmm. unprecedented, like, right. I mean, incomparable to any other, yeah. like, uh, dynasty, a Muslim right. dynasty per se, like, mm -hmm. you know, there is... There has been a lot of ignorance regarding the Ottoman history, even in Turkey. Right. Because, right. like, even in uh, faculties, that I'm a student who mm. graduated mm. from theology faculty, and Ottoman history is not taught as an Islamic mm. history. Only a couple of courses you can take. So, look, there is an irony. I'll tell you something. <laughs> this is an irony because I was specifically told when I said I teach late Ottoman history, I still remember the Hodges says to me, "That's not Islamic history." Okay. Yeah. And it, it, it blew my mind. I said, what do you mean it's not Islamic history? <laughs> I mean, like, do, what happened to the Muslims? Do we not exist? Are we not part of Islamic history? Like, it doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah. and, you know, to, to not understand that as part of the legacy of Islamic history, I think is a travesty if we start to see it like that. I mean, that is true. and I'm telling you now, Tugay, I mean, I know this. When I was a young kid in the madrasa, we learned, you know, basics on Umayyad. We did Sira, We did the Abbasids. Ottomans, no chance. And yeah. let's look at the problem here. Yeah. Let's go back to the Ayasofya question. So many Muslims around the world are fudging the Ayasofya question. Yeah. So many ulama are fudging the Ayasofya question. Why? <laughs> because they, they didn't do the history. 
So now they say, did Fatih buy the land? Did Fatih steal the land? Did Fatih conquer the land? Well, why didn't you study it in 101? Yeah. This is not a problem for Turks. In Turkey, it's not a problem. But it's starting to become a problem for Muslims. Yeah. And it shouldn't be a problem for Muslims because this should have been a basic staple that should have been taught to us. That, that's my belief anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, totally yeah. agree. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean it's, like, it's unacceptable to have... Yeah that much of like you know um uh, what do you call it like uh, blindness towards ottoman history yeah yeah uh, so uh, thank you very much for answering the first question so i would like to move to a uh, second question so we will be, we will be we will be able to discuss um as many things as possible mm -hmm. so uh, when it comes to history one of the important thing one of the most important things is the methodology so mm -hmm. method in which the history is understood studied yeah, yeah. and taught Mm -hmm. So, uh, regarding Ottoman history, from what I read and from what I, you know, at least like to, with my capacity, try to um, engage with, seems to be a bit like, sort of like distorted or somehow, um, in some ways, um, manipulated version of the history. So, mm -hmm. I was reading your article the other day, so you use a Quran as an example in terms of methodology. Uh, so when it comes to history, so the time and place are two crucial components. Mm. And so my reading of your article, in which you argued that history should be instructive in the Quranic sense, uh, would mm. you be able to uh, elaborate on that uh, first? Sure. And also, you also draw an analogy between how Quran recounts the past through stories, because we've got yeah. stories like stories of prophets, Salams, and um, some other stories regarding human conditions. Right. And hence, how, how reciters gain an imaginative ability you use in your article specifically yeah. that enables them relate the past through present conditions. Yeah. And would you please elaborate a bit on that? And so um, we'll, I'll be happy to hear. So Togai, one of the things that came to my mind is I remember speaking to a student from one of the seminaries. Okay. And he'd, he'd studied in the Darsan Nizami. Okay. And he said to me, he came to Turkey and we were speaking and he, one of the questions he asked me was, can my training in the Darsan Nizami be relevant for my study of history? Okay. I, said, why? I said, why not? And he was made to believe that the training he had got in the Darsan Nizami um, curricula, while it was very tight in terms of a particular methodology of learning, um, tr uh, repetition and so forth, it didn't equip him to be a historian because there was an assumption um, and maybe false, false assumption that the way to write history is the way or in the manner in which history is taught in academia. And so he was made to believe that he doesn't have the skills to be able to uh, write history because he hadn't acquired the skills which are required that we attain in Western academia. And I think that's a little bit problematic. Yeah. Um, and so I remember sitting there thinking and saying, well, as a Muslim, if we looked at Ibn Khaldun as an example, yeah and many of the ulama who used to write in the past, and many of them are historians, up until, let's just say, Alim Javdid Pasha. Yeah. What is the framework that they're using in regards to writing history? Well, the first framework is, is they're talking to a Muslim audience. True. Okay, so they're aware of that. They're talking to a learned audience of, of people who are themselves. But they're coming from a tradition, which is its core of the seminaries that they're studying whether it's the madrasa system or independent scholars or themselves, where the Quran had shaped the way that they thought, the way they wrote, and the way that they placed themselves in the world. 
in that sense, the Quran was integral in the yeah. sense that we have to accept the fact that uh, as a Muslim, you'd have to say it, that Allah Ta'ala has laid down particular foundations of history writing yeah. in regards to what he's required of the history, right? Yeah. And why can that not be a model for us? Why is it not possible that Muslims in the past, devoid of academia, were writing about history, which we use as primary source data, which gives us the imagination of what's happening in those periods. Why can we not replicate um, that type of pedagogy to some degree uh, and make the adjustments because of the language skills, archival material and so forth mm. and, and, and use the Quranic model to do that. And I just don't see it's a contradiction in any shape or form. I mean, I've attempted to do that to the best degree when I write, which is that I have to maintain what is true. Um, the, my work has to have a particular standard of ethics. It has a particular level of integrity. And we are truth seekers as, as Muslims. Um, yeah. And it has to be, like I said, instructive. Allah Ta'ala, when he's talking to the Muslim, he's instructing them. And so then when we're writing history from that perspective, it can't just be dates and facts and figures. I mean, it has to be instructive. It has to, yeah. it has to mean something to people, for Muslims in particular. And, um, you know, um, I'm not, the assumption that people will assume is when you're writing from the Muslim perspective, you're just talking about Allah, 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 and trying to brainwash people. That's not the point I'm making. The point is, is that the Quran is the principled book on writing about haq, writing about the truth. And um, Western academia, to some degree, can be ideologically driven in the sense of diminishing the Muslim experience by yeah. writing in a particular framework, which at times, um, it reduces the exceptional nature of certain things that happen within the Muslim experience, where the Quran actually elevates it because okay. it gives you a particular mindset. So, I mean, I don't know if Western academics would be satisfied with that because they would <laughs> assume that I, it, it's, I, I'm framing the idea that Western academics can't write about history. They can write about history. Everyone can write about history. Sure, of course. But I think when we write it about Islamic history, I think uh, the essence of the Quran as a medium um, helps in the way that we understand Muslim societies and communities. I think that that's important um, because they evoke that in their life themselves. So much of my work, even when I spoke about my PhD, the ulama had evoked ayahs of Quran all the time. So it, it's, it's in, entrenched in the community. So why can it not be entrenched in the writing of that community? So that it, it, it's a, so the, my idea was to write from the perspective that it's, it's, it's a part of the people I'm writing about, you know, from that perspective. So I'm an insider to some degree. <laughs> uh, and in some ways, it's a continuation of the tradition. So yeah. we spoke about a discursive tradition. Yeah. I want to be part of that discursive tradition, not independent from it. So, I mean, there is this assumption that uh, writing history is actually writing, writing from a perspective of outside, as an outsider, right. as an external examiner. So... Yeah. In that sense, that contradicts with what you're saying because you want you want to write from an inside from inside perspective. So, yeah. would you a bit like would you like to elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Also, like today's uh, you know today's uh, conditions regarding the Western Academy, especially like Ottoman history books. For example, when you read a mainstream books uh, written in Ottoman history, there, there seems to be a you know lack of uh, Islamic emphasis on those books especially the islamic nature of the ottoman history has been somehow stripped off from what from what i've seen is yeah. that so what would you uh, what would your response be to that uh, you know um, sure 
I think there's a misconception in assuming that um, one can only be objective if you're on the outside as an outside observer. I think you can, one can be an internal um, observer as well. Yeah. Um, in the end of the day, what's the objective of the internal observer is to, um, let's look at the sayahatnamics. What, what was the idea behind that? I'm going to Falan, Falan, Falan place <laughs> to teach my, teach my fellows what I've seen. Yeah, it's, it's an observation. But if you look at Evelia Chelebi's uh, travelogues, they're not only about non-Muslim countries, about Muslim societies. Yeah, that's you true. Know, he's, he's an internal critic to some degree, an observer. Yeah. Isn't he? I mean, his, his critic, like Mizan al-Haq, is a total, yeah. total critic of the practices of the right. Arab domains. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, you're right. I mean, that would be, that's a very core. Uh, and I think that we should, we should have a culture of internal criticism. That is true. In terms of uh, our observations of the societies we live in, the societies we write about, and the way that there are misconceptions internally about our society. So once again, this, I, I'm going to keep doing this just because it's fun for me. <laughs> let's just look at Hagia Sophia again. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, right. <laughs> Which is, that how was it possible that Muslims um, had so many caveats? Yeah. Because, you know, as uh, there was they weren't exposed to a, a culture of internal criticism or they were not interested in a culture of internal criticism of writing about these subject areas. And in, in that sense, they were devoid of having access to this. And I think internal Muslim criticism in terms of when writing about history is important. So for me, like now I remind people that, okay, do you know what happened in the period? <laughs> Shall I explain it to you? And let's look at the Ayasofya issue because I am being asked to speak about the Ayasofya issue rather than the Western academic by Muslims, because there's certain degrees of trust. He's an insider. But what's expected from me is not just to make up fairy tales and say, this is what happened. They want the criticism. They want the hard facts. And they're saying, you know, he is going to be quite objective because he understands the sensitivities. He's part of the community and he has the right to be critical because he's a scholar. Yeah. And the assumption that, that these things are not important and we're just biased is, is exceptionally unfair. The second point to your question is it, it all comes down to one's gaze, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're looking from the outside and you don't have the full sort of like uh, understanding of the intricacies of a society, and let's just look at like Hagia Sophia again, people are looking from the outside in. And there's a lot of complexities about Turkey they do not understand. They're outside critics. But those of us who are internal, who are living in this country, we say, wait, you've missed something. You, that's not what's happening. That's not what this is about. And in that sense, if you're a Muslim, you understand that you, sh you if you're an educated Muslim, so let's just say you're an academic in the West who has an academic training. And yeah. so you have your qualifications and you understand something. And you're a Muslim who's ac academically trained to the same degree, but you also have the added advantage of being a person who lived within those communities and societies. Yeah. You have the capacity to then look at that from a different vantage point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, lived experience has always been an important part of the Islamic right. tradition because right. it's also seen, for example, in the fuqh as yeah. a very authentic uh, forms of uh, regulation of yeah, yeah. as well. I mean, on so many occasions, I, in, in when, I have written, when I've written about history, my instinct from the Muslim perspective has forced me to investigate subject areas, which mm -hmm. Often people who are not Muslim don't investigate. I'm not saying they are not good non-Muslim academics. There are many good non-Muslim academics. But I'm saying one of the 
the point I'm making is that the, the claim that because I'm a Muslim who writes about Islamic history that I'm somehow biased is a very unfair claim. Because actually, internally, I say, hang on a minute, is this possible? Because I know in Islam we do such and such. And yeah. then, you know what happens? We find the evidence for that. I say, yeah, my hunch was right. It's <laughs> because we're accustomed to these behaviors and patterns from osmosis. We just know. And I don't think that should be belittled in any shape. Uh, would, would, you, would you please explain the word osmosis for our listeners? Because yeah, it's, yeah, it's sure. a bit like... <laughs> osmosis, <laughs> is that like... It's a scientific term. And the idea is, is that um, you're conditioned by your environment. It's right called to os osmosis, right? Osmosis, that's right. Yeah, osmosis. Okay. Would you, yeah. Would you and, and so the idea, the idea is, is that you know, a human being is 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 educated by the environment and condition to the point that things are second nature, and they don't even know it. Okay. So we learn. There's so much of Islam we learn. Like I give an example from my own example. There's so much of Islam I know from living in Muslim societies yeah. that if you ask me, why did you did, do that? I said, I don't know. We just all do it. <laughs> and it becomes part of your behavior. It becomes part of your patterns. But what's interesting is when you go to another society and they don't do that, you say, oh, hang on a minute. We do this. Why don't they do that? Or you go to another Muslim community and people go, oh, they're doing this for this reason. You say, no, hang on a minute. I also do that. Yeah. So hmm, there must be something Islamic here because I do it and they do it. And so much of, of, of this sentiment I, I don't think should be discounted. I understand it's not empirical, but it can help the Muslim in trying to see if the empirical data exists for it. If it doesn't exist for it, fine, we can scrap it. Yeah. But it's, it, it, it helps in the, in the search for inquiry. It definitely does give you something. And yeah. I don't think that Muslim experience should be diminished in that context. Yeah. Um, so as a Muslim who does Islamic studies, I, I ask very, I ask very different questions. That's the interesting thing. My my line of questioning is different because what is my objective? Sure. So in Western academia, the objective may be just I want to write a book because this this is interesting for me. It's not only is it interesting, how will it benefit the community? What's the point of this? Sure. And so in that sense, it helps um, to be somebody from the inside um, and Islam as a lived experience has been very, very beneficial for me. And I've, this happened to me in so many um, conferences where you'll get a Western academic say, blah, 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 blah. And I'll just turn around and go, hang on, wait a minute. No, that's not why we do that. Yeah. And they say the text says. So I give an example. I was in a uh, conference once where people critique the ulama. The ulama are just careerists. They did this, 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 this. And I found that very strange. So I put my, stuck my hand up and I said, do you know any alims? And they uh -huh. went, no. I'm sorry, did they say what? Ulamas were opportunities or careers? They, you know, careerist jobs, he's doing it for money. Okay. Because that's what the data shows you. Okay. Um, the data doesn't show the alim's emotion. The data doesn't show that the alim has taqwa. The data is not going to show you that the alim possibly fears Allah. And that the meta-culture of the ulama is instilled in this notion of tawheed and taqwa. That's not, the academic's not going to see that. But as a Muslim, I'm aware of that. So I take that into consideration. I say, oh, hang on a minute. Hmm. Let me just look at this. So I asked them, I said, do you know any ulama? They went, no. Have you met an alim? No. <laughs> so you don't even know any ulama. What do you know of their culture? What do you know of the framework they work in? Is it possible they were God-fearing? Is that possible? They said, yeah, it's possible, but we don't have the data. I said, okay, but you should still take that into consideration. And you shouldn't write 
the opposite with such conviction. When you know you have a blind spot about a particular group of people you're writing about. And so I take that into consideration when I write. I take into consideration and I know many Muslims who are God-fearing. And yeah. so it's, you know, rather than just calling Ikiji Abdul Hamid or Abdul Hamid II a despot, blah, blah, blah. Say, hang on a minute. It's very possible he was the pious sultan. Why not? Why, why is that alien to any of us? So yeah. in that sense, um, I think some of these Muslim sensitivities are, are important, not only for the individual, but they should be placed on the table when talking about Islamic matters. I believe that. And that some people can say that's idealistic, but I believe that that should be put on the table, at least to safeguard um, Muslims by suggesting that actually there is a possibility that they're different. I mean, like drawing largely from the sensitivity that Muslims should have towards the Ottoman states, uh, you know, uh, you don't, I know you don't call it as an empire, but like, let's say to Ottoman domains. And mm -hmm. um, um, would, you, would you say that Ottoman state was, an, was sort of like emotional state and it was retributing to its citizens in the sense that they were being sensitive, sensitive, sensitive towards the state? So, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I like the idea of, I've said this before, pushing the idea that the Ottoman state is an emotional state. And what I mean by that is it's a state that's built on Islam. Islam mm -hmm. is a fundamental pillar of, of the identity of that state. And Islam is the glue in which negotiations, negotiations happen between state and society. The mm -hmm. Ummah is an emotional Ummah. I mean, religious communities are known. And I, I don't mean emotional in the sense of weakness, this misconception. Yeah, and when you, when you mention emotion, what I mean is that it's emotion, it's emotional in the sense that the, the state has a sensitivity towards its subjects. It recognizes the needs and the interests of its subjects in a way that the modern state probably can't. The modern state is very abstract, very cold, very bureaucratic. Whereas the Ottoman state, because people would evoke Islam against the Sultan, for example, they'll say to the Sultan, fear Allah. Yeah. I mean, that's an emotional statement. I, I've seen in so many of my work that if the Hakam doesn't do, or if the Imam doesn't do such and such, then, he, then Allah will not give him reward. What, what's the point of this language? What does the Imam care about this? But he, obviously he does care, or, he's, or, or, or the, the subjects care. So when you start to see this rhetoric, this language, this style, you start to realize that there is a, a, a particular emotion in which state and society interact with each other, in which Islam is that language, is that paradigm, you know, is that hegemonic paradigm, if you want to call it that. And so what you see is I'm very comfortable saying that the Ottoman state was an emotional state because it was willing to listen to um, the necessity and the needs of its society and that Islam as the, the language of that um, facilitated. So that's what I mean by and large by that. Okay, great. Uh, so uh, my third question then will be like, mm. you know, uh, the famous Muslim intellectual, uh, Talal Asad, mm. Talal Asad, sorry, uh, he has written like cultural anthropologies. He has recently mm. written a book called Secular Translation, uh, Nation States, Modern Self and Calculated Reason, mm. in which he argues that modern times are broken times because the discursive tradition has not been able to maintain or has not been maintained anymore in the modern times. Mm -hmm. uh, namely, modernity prevents societies from building a bridge between past as a consciousness and present as an awareness. Mm -hmm. So because the discursive tradition is not preserved anymore, to what mm -hmm. extent do you think this created an amnesia or sort of like, you know, ignorance among Muslims regarding the Ottoman history in the sense that 
they can't escape the paradigm and can't relate the past to the present the reality they live in. Yeah. So Aya Sophia. That was we a... keep going to, Yeah, we keep going. To, we can keep. Uh, I love the Aya Sophia question. It's just I think this, this is going to be a unique example. Yeah, yeah. It's just great. It's just that 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 level of amnesia is unbelievable for me. You know, and and in that sense, the lalosity is 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 bang on point. It's people's consciousness of the past is is so uh, distorted. I, and I don't want to just simply say Aya Sophia 1453 the misconception or the possibility that the ulama for 500 years across the Ottoman world were colluding this, this, this theft that Fatih had committed. You know, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to make that assumption. They're not making it openly, but that's the assumption that's being made. Okay. And the ulama spoke about everything. So you can see that there's an amnesia of 500 years of history. I tell people that Mehmed Akif was the khatib and the imam of Ayasofia. Sophia. They go, oh, really? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, how can you not know this? And this is, you know, and in the West, people don't even know who Mehmed Akif is. You speak to Muslim, Mehmed Akif, who, who's Akif? And this is a travesty in itself. So this level of disconnection from the past in this way, in, in the sense that most, most people are consumed by the now, okay. consumed by the everyday politics of the now and, and obsessed with the now. And they don't realize that actually that whole period of the past is necessary in making sense of the now, in contextualizing the now, in, in, in making sense of why the now is important. And in that sense, I think modernity has been exceptionally aggressive on the human individual, the human soul, and societies by and large, by constantly creating breaks and agitations to the point that human memory is just something that has, is flawed in and in of itself. Human memory is exceptionally flawed. And the manner in which human memory is being agitated to the point that it cannot be trusted at all is very problematic. The idea that social media has diminished human and, and, and modern tools have diminished the memory to the point that um, it, it's, it's becoming collectively, um, I would say intellectually, I, I, I believe YouTube, when I go on YouTube and I'm reluctant to do these podcasts, and one of the reasons is because I think the audiences are collectively intellectually immature now. They, they just don't have a grasp of so many of the nuances that might have happened in the past. And so in a strange way, they have a very strange understanding of the past, a very utopian understanding of what ought to have happened. Okay. And where have you been for the last 600? What have you been? Do you not understand the nature of human beings? Like what's going on? So, mm -hmm. I think Asad is bang on point here. I think, um, you know, and the idea of the discussive tradition, I mean, yeah, it, everything's just got so choppy and sloppy right now. So it's hard, um, you know, and, and we just can't make sense of, of anything, which is the challenge here. And this is the, the question people are asking me right now. Like, what is the Ummah? Who are the Ummah? Where do they belong? Where do they live? Am I the Ummah? Are they the Ummah? Like, this would have been a, a question that wouldn't have been asked in that way in the past. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. the same question was asked uh, over and over again, but Marshall Hudson, in his book, like, yeah. The Venture of Islam, he actually, mm. to some degree, sort of, like, refuted this claim and said that, mm. for example, he gives the Ibn Battuta as an example, mm. a, a, a scholar, a traveler from Tanja, from, mm. uh, you know, North Africa, he traveled around the Muslim world and traveled around, like, Mm. pretty much of the, mm. uh, his time, the world of his mm. time. Mm. 
and was able to was liable to uh, work as a jurist in Indonesia and some other places. Yeah. So yeah. in terms of like uh, combining the dots, like what yeah. Inma is as a discursive yeah. you know yeah. body. So this is a very good example that how the structure gives a sort of like ability to sort of uh, has a mobility within the uh, large uh, you know territories and yeah. i don't think like i don't think one needs to have a borders or something instead sure. it's it's a sort of like um set of mind or you know uh, it's i think you know what's interesting to guys i think in the past communities were collectivist communities yeah. and i think what i mean by that is the ulama network to some degree and the ulama were representatives or an alim a given alim at a given time would be or could be a representative of a large group of people. True. And so they could reflect the imagination of the large group in of itself. They can say, I represent the interests of this particular group. And this is the imagination of what it means to be an ummah. And then when that alim travels to another part of the world, he not only represents the previous community he was a part of, but the community he's entered. And he creates this connectivity on a human level of this imagination of what it belongs to what it means to belong to the Ummah, which is a way, uh, and then they have their networks, the Madrasas and, mm. uh, you know, and, and all this so, so forth. And in that sense, the ulama, as a sort of like social glue, who were the consciousness of the people, were also part of their imagination, cre the creating the imagination of belonging to the Ummah. That's a very important institution, or as we've said before, meta-institution within Islam in that yeah. context. And right now what's happened is, um, social media has replaced the, the human component, the human aspect, which I still think we still have it in Muslim societies. In, in what ways do you, do you think like social media has replaced the human components? Because like, would you, would you elaborate a bit on that, please? Yeah, I, I think like, for example, let's just look at Muslim societies in particular. Yeah. Muslim societies still have a very human component where word of mouth is important. The human component of interacting and listening to people via this word of mouth and so they become collectivist societies because they still interact with each other in a way where they still pull together in the decision-making process. Yep. But societies which are heavily dependent on social media or are becoming heavily dependent on social media or cities or peoples who are becoming heavily dependent on social media, you're starting to see a real human disconnect from each other, a human disconnect in terms of how they understand each other, how they qualify each other's emotions, how they qualify each other's identities, how how does one belong to a, a, a particular group or a lived group or a lived collective identity that's becoming far more deconstructed by spending most of these questions or sorry, debating most of this question on the social platform rather than the real platform, which is the human platform on the ground. And so uh, a lot of the intellectual product or the, a lot of the intellectual like um, thought process is now happening in a space which is quite abstract. Whereas in the past, this would happen right on the ground. You know, this would have been taken right to, to uh, the, the society. And in that sense, it's interesting because as academics, we are accused of being people who sit in ivory towers. And yet these ivory towers have now been created for the mass in which the mass who has the capacity to use Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, is not, they, they have their own ivory tower uh, in which they sit in. 
and I'm disconnected from everyone else, where they can bash away on their keyboards and make judgment about every single person. Um, and they diminish the, the nuance that intellectual ideas require in the way that we manifest them in societies in which we're just talking to each other as if we don't exist as human beings. I think that's a problem. And I think in the past, the human aspect was a lot stronger. This is an, I'm, I'm just intellectualizing this. I can't prove it, you know, and this is not necessarily related to history, but I'm under the impression here that um, societies in the past were better connected than we realize. And, but they were collectivist societies. So often they would give their allegiance or, uh, to people to represent their interests. And, you know, people who, and so I'm assuming that leadership and authority functioned in very different ways in the way that people gave their leadership authority to people who were their representatives. Whereas now people feel the need to represent themselves because we have become democratized to such a degree by yeah. social media and the other mediums. Yeah, that, that is true. Like, um, the, the modernity's effect on Ottoman studies have been huge. So in that sense, like modernity is now seen as a language in itself uh, by, let's say, post-structuralist thinkers such as Walter Mignolo and Sipivat yeah. Halak, and mm. especially Halak's last book, Reform and Modernity, is in itself is a phenomenal work. Uh, mm. And also Assad has written uh, same works. So it, that language sort of like involves a specific forms of uh, ideology. And based on that ideology, uh, you, you come across with a specific form of narrative. So, and... And it's very hard to go around that narrative once it has been established. So do you think contemporary studies on Ottoman history is also subjected to same sort of like narrative that's being created uh, uh, in like, you know, in different platforms and forms? Of if, we, if we are to assume, like Asad, like Mignolo, like Halak say, that modernity is a reflection of the world that we live in right now, right? and that modernity is giving language and meaning to the world we live in now, then why, if, if society, if politics, if the individual is susceptible to modernity, why would the other institutions not be susceptible to it? Mm. Even the institutions that are um, diagnosing modernity or criticizing modernity, why, can, why, why is there an assumption that they can be independent yeah. from the language of modernity I mean, um, when talking about the past. Yeah, for example, taking uh, Halak's criticism of Edward uh, Said, mm. Edward mm. uh, Said Orientalism uh, mm. is quite similar to what you're saying because Halak argued that Edward Said was actually speaking from the paradigm instead of going around it. So Edward Said works in that sense was sort of like Orientalism itself, not necessarily yeah. critiquing it. So in that sense, it's very relevant to um, you know bring that. Oh, sure. I mean, if Halak is correct in his assumption that modernity is hegemonic, yeah. then we would have to assume that in Halak's assumption, um, every institution and knowledge system that is a product of modernity um, looks at the writing of peoples from the, mo from the gaze of modernity. Okay. You'd have to say that. I mean, how, how can you not say that? So, I mean, this is quite challenging because I've tried to, yeah. I've tried to exercise this idea in Western academia and I've got a lot of resistance here because mm. it, it, it comes with, I mean, Halak as a writer can be quite forthright and that can be quite agitating to some people yeah. because it's, it's harsh criticism. 
Um, so the idea is, is that um, is Western academia to a certain degree a product of modernity? If it's a product of modernity, then the way that it's going to look at the past is going to be from the gaze of modernity and it's going to be from the gaze of a particular interest group. And it's possible that modernity can be in a different end of a different on the spectrum. Okay. And that it, there's lots of contestations and any in, individual or given thinker can, can negotiate. Because one of the questions that we've asked, well, okay, are Muslims not affected by modernity? And so, you know, is Halak not affected by modernity? Uh -huh. Is Hasid not affected by modernity? So are they not all products of that? And I think there is a sense of recognition that we are all tainted by the, the worldview that we live in. But to some degree, the question is the machinery of academia. No. Not any given individual, but the machinery of academia itself. Is it set up where it supports modernity to the extent that it, pre it, like, it sort of creates assumptions of people of the past from the worldview of modernity um, in which it diminishes um, other forms of learning, i.e. the Islamic form of learning, in terms of discussing the Ottoman past. So the question would be asked is that if I wrote about Ottoman history from the Muslim perspective or from the knowledge base of Islam, um, is that less valid than me writing about Ottoman history from the academic perspective, which comes from like, the Western tradition? Yeah. Um, and this is the question, isn't it, in, in that sense? And so there is an assumption that your writing of history is only valid if it comes from the sort of framework of Western academia, which is a product of modernity. And mm. that can't be doubted. So that in that sense, modernity is writing about people of the past. Okay. And, um, and then it writes it from its perspective. And it writes it from its perspective of what is important to the modern gaze or the gaze of modernity. And that's slightly problematic. Now, how do you separate yourself from that? And that's a challenge. I, I think people like Halak and Asad and Sabah Mahmoud and Mignolo and Spivik They've done some wonderful work, and even Foucault have done some wonderful work in trying to recognize in that problem area and sure. saying, okay, can this be done differently? And I think they should be taken into consideration. And yes, may, they have come from Western academia. No doubt about it. Obviously. Now, there are, there are writers in the Muslim tradition who also critique modernity. But the problem is, is that writers from the Muslim tradition are relegated as being irrelevant because they seem like they're, they're people who, of course, would critique modernity. <laughs> because you know and so forth but um uh, we have critics of modernity even within the islamic tradition um True. who who say similar things so um you know i, I think ottoman history in particular um uh, and one of the things about modernity or the nar the way that modernity creates a narrative is it really reduces the role of religion True. Um, as being significant and so the way that modernity self percent presents itself as something that starts in the 19th century means that when it presents Ottoman history from the 19th century, it presents Ottoman history from its perspective of modernity. Yeah, it's, and so it doesn't give Ottoman history its credit. Yeah, it's quite similar to claims like Oriental despotism and, you know, yeah. things yeah. of that nature, and which is quite bizarre. <laughs> but what's changed? I mean, the language used towards Turkey today is exactly the same. Yeah. Right. What's changed? Uh, Turkey is still perceived in the same way that, you, you know, when, when, and this is what's interesting, which is that this language of modernity is still shaping 
the way that we perceive ourselves, and let's, let's go back to Ayasofya again, it's the, language of, it's the language of modernity. It's the language of modernity which is telling us what Ayasofya ought to be and ought not to be. It, nothing, I mean, the, it's the way the history is written from the perspective of modernity, from actually World War I, not from 1453. And it's this imagination that's created um, of, in terms of driving the narrative around Ayasofya in terms of how um, it should be placed in the modern context. So, um, yeah, this is problematic to some degree. And I think when Muslims enter modernity, um, because it's such a big machinery, yeah. until they, we can find a way of fashioning an alternative. In that sense, people like Halak have, and, and Asad have been very helpful because at least, and Mignolo, because they've told us this is a problem. Yeah. And we recognize that problem now, going back to my, the early question about the Quran and so forth. I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, can we fashion something different? Let's try it. Yeah. I mean, you know, because we know that there's baggage here. True. So, so, um, so you know, like considering the uh, dialectical and dynamic nature of like multi-ethnic uh, nature of Ottoman state, like world of Ottomans, mm. You know, a world in which the Islamic tradition, like in conjunction with the various Islamic authorities, evolved, changed, and reformed over time. Like in mm. particular, uh, understanding how Islam, the Sharia, the evolution of Islamic sciences, and more importantly, authority uh, functioned. Do you mm. think this too generous nature of Ottomans were wrongly pursued as drawing away from the classical Islamic uh, traditions, such as like Umayyads and Abbasid? And has hence being pursued as somehow of different nature, which is incomparable to the classical nature of caliphates. If I think that, yeah, now I understand. I think there are transitions that take place in the Ottoman period, just like there's transitions today. Transitions yeah. today. The question is, and it's always crosses my mind, is that um, when the Ottomans are going through their particular transitions. Um, in terms of Islam being a discursive tradition, why is that not perceived as being part of the greater Islamic narrative? And why is it perceived as being a, a, a break from the Islamic narrative? Yeah. And I don't think historians and scholars have placed a strong enough case uh, to, to make those claims. Um, I think what's interesting about the Ottoman domains, because it's so large, yeah in comparison to the Omeyyads and the Abbasids, it's so large that um, um, scholars writing about the Ottoman period and writing about it in totality are always going to struggle. Yeah. There's just so much going on in, in that context. But um, I don't know if there's an insecurity. There's some level of insecurity that we, we're suffering in regards to Ottoman studies, in which we haven't come to terms with the fact of accepting that the Ottomans, what they were doing was Islamic. But what's interesting, for example, we, we look at transitions in Islamic law all the time, prior to the Ottomans, and we say, yeah, yeah this didn't happen before, this happened now. This didn't happen. Yeah, but when the Ottomans did it, there's an agitation, right? Somehow, what the Ottomans have introduced is totally alien, and yet at the time, you see robust debates and so forth, and it's seen as the norm. Yeah. Um, so I, I find those things quite surprising. Um, even the Ottomans as a caliphate, 
I mean, it's questioned on so many occasions. Like, why? Why is this question? Yeah. Why are the Abbasids or the Omids, you know, that exceptional that the Ottomans couldn't fulfill these requirements? What's happening here? And I feel in Ottoman studies, there's a continuous attempt to undercut the Ottomans, continuously undercut them in that sense, and in terms of their validity. And that's, that's dangerous, because that's 600 years of validity we're trying to undercut, which seems to suggest that, you know, Islam stopped after the Abbasids, which some people believe. But, you know, that, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I see this. It's quite an irony to, you know... Uh, yeah, I mean... I mean, a lot of Muslims can't understand the, the establishment of the Ilmiya structure, for example. Yeah. And the Ilmiya structure makes perfect sense in terms of the bureaucratization of the state. Yeah. Um, a lot of people can't understand the role of the Sheikh al-Islam. Um, but, the, you know, the Sheikh al-Islam makes perfect sense in that context. A lot of people can't understand that many parts of the Ottoman domain, the majority of the subjects were non-Muslims. Yeah. and uh, you know how does islam interact with that maybe maybe that like because the majority of uh subjects were like not muslim initially and also the ottomans were stretched to uh to you know a, a large territory mm -hmm. and you know their ability to cope up with this situation mm -hmm. has some, somehow give them has somehow given them the you know the the ability to uh what do you call it like uh to adjust uh to evolve uh rapidly compared to the previous uh, you know islamic uh dynasties and which is like pursuing that as a sort of like uh drawing away from the tradition will be i think detrimental to the very nature of the uh you know tradition itself well the ignoring of the evolution is the problem yeah the, the idea is is that we as Muslims are ignorant of 600 years of Ottoman history. <laughs> and so any evolution that took place in the Ottoman period has to be rejected because the only scholars I read are the classical scholars. <laughs> and it's only their opinion that matters because Allah forbid that the ulama after the classical so scholars would do an ishtihad. So in that sense, you just have to, you, when people want to undercut Fatih, who are they going to? They're going to classical scholars. They're going through the books of Ghazali. You're yeah. thinking, but there's ulam, they were ulama at the time of Fatih's period. Why don't you just read what they wrote? No, they're not important. I need to see what Taymiyyah said, and Karamfi said, and Baikalani said. Like, what are you doing? Like, because even there, there's an imagination that Islamic scholarship, in terms of, it, it, it's in its tightest form prior, prior to the Ottomans. And then the Ottomans came along and just started doing things that they wanted to do. <laughs> and mainly because... That's, that's just, once again, I'm not saying that the classical period is not important, but do you, do you think these scholars in the Ottoman period, just like us, were not drawn from the same sources? Do you think they, they were not reading these books? They were studying these books in the madrasa. They were there. That's just part of their curricula. They were aware of it. I mean, in fact, these scholars were a lot closer to that period. Yeah. I mean, they were aware of it. So I think we're being a little unfair, I guess. As a, as a historian, that's what I see. And maybe we should take responsibility that we just are not studying that period. And when we study it, it's amazing. We, as Muslims, are still dependent on the information coming out of Western academia, um, by and large, around the world. And that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. As a Muslim, you ask them, okay, what happened in 1624? What happened in 1721? 
what happened in Saudi Arabia, you know, today's Saudi Arabia in Makkah in 1852? What happened? I don't know. Okay, why don't you know? Why don't you know, you know? And this is the interesting thing about the Ottomans, that, you know, you've got from Bosnia to Yemen, yeah. to the Crimea, to Algeria. This is I'm, phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I've got also another question, which is quite related to uh, ulama's mobility within the Ottoman domain, mm. especially, like, mm. they're very active. Uh, for mm. example, uh, an alien from, let's say, Salonika will be freely or mm. will be able to go to study in Damascus and teach mm. in Cairo and, mm -hmm. you know, in some other parts of the Ottoman yeah. later in Europe, in large yeah. parts of Europe. And yeah. so, especially this trend has somehow, I think, uh, started after the conquest of Istanbul, when mm -hmm. Istanbul has become a center of learning with the you know, with the, um, you know, uh, a lot of efforts that Fatih has put into it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, opening up madrasas and yeah. like, trying to appeal to scholars from different parts mm -hmm. of the world. We know mm -hmm. there is a certain records that yeah. Ali Kushju and mm -hmm. some other uh, mathemati mathematicians and scholars into the, into the uh, capital city. Mm -hmm. And after that point, there seems to be a like a very rapid stream of mm. uh, scholars who are coming to Istanbul, right. passing through Istanbul, right. learning and yeah. being, being educated in here, and then going to the different parts of the Muslim world. So yeah. in that sense, like looking at the Ottoman history from that perspective of scholars and understanding that these people, mm -hmm. uh, they were very, you know, well-educated intellectuals, they came mm -hmm. to Istanbul yeah. and were, were being able to like somehow... Uh, uh, Not only Istanbul, this yeah. is the great thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you said the Ottomans had um, many important capitals, Istanbul was a key capital and you... That's right. Cairo, you know, Damascus... That's right, that's you know. right. We have multiple centers in the Ottoman domains and multiple centers of scholarly, scholarly centers, of scholarship. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's uh, also an indication that Ottomans were actually a caliphate in the proper sense because yeah. they were somehow intellectually vibrant society. They were connected in a way, I mean, like, so one of the things that I found interesting in my work when I was writing it was I found an alim say something in um, Prizren in Kosovo. Okay. And then I found an alim saying that in Istanbul. And then I found an alim saying that in Gaza. So this and I, I said, how does that happen? Yeah. How three islands in three different parts of the domain saying the same thing? How is that possible? There and I couldn't, exactly, I couldn't see their movement. Uh, I couldn't chase their movement or had they been speaking to each other. But there's something is going around. Not only that, let's look at, I found, let's look at Yusuf al-Nabahan. Yeah. Yusuf al-Nabahan is interesting because he was a cutter in, uh, in Quds and Beirut in Diyarbakir, and then in Istanbul. <laughs> like, look, he, uh, even as a judge, he's been moved around the Ottoman domains. And then he goes to study in Makkah when, he's, when the young Turks have their revolution, he's removed and he goes to Makkah or Medina and he's studying there and just scholarship and then goes, moves around to Cairo. I mean, this is the amazing thing about the, the movement scholar. I don't think we appreciate to what degree um, the culture of Rihla and being a moving scholar, one, for ilm, and two, the Ottoman bureaucracy itself was moving people around, not only ulama, but just bureaucrats. 
like uh, Shevket Pasha. One minute he's in Baghdad, next minute he's in Albania, next minute he's in Istanbul. Oh. So this movement that the Ottoman system had um, of moving people around continuously who are part of the state machinery or bureaucracy or administration, whether mm -hmm. they're part of the Ilmiya or the military class or the scribal class, yeah, this is something that we underestimate. True, the, the Rihle culture, which is like traveling mm -hmm. for the sake of uh, knowledge and for the sake of God, yeah. is very important in Islam because yeah. I was like uh, recently reading a book, uh, Fakhreddin Abrali, which is a mm -hmm. classical scholar, theologians mm -hmm. and philosopher. And in one place he says, if a student of Aydin, student of uh, knowledge, seeker of knowledge, will travel to the other part of the world, yeah. to the other side of the world from, from where he stays, and it will, for, the, for, for only a question in his mind, mm -hmm. only a small you know, thing that he couldn't figure out, it will totally worth it. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, let's... Let's look at today, as a, a student who wants to do a PhD in the United States of America will go. But why are they going to do a PhD in the United States of America? Because they want a job, they want a career. If a person wants to make money, they'll, they'll go to another country. If a person wants to get married, they'll find a wife in another country who they met on the internet, no problem. But when it comes to the seeking of knowledge, generally, as, as being a seeker of knowledge, something is, is, is being lost here where where we are becoming so sedentary in the way that we live our lives that we're not becoming seekers of knowledge and yet those seekers of knowledge or that culture of knowledge seeking by the multiplicities of scholars around the muslim world at a particular point was very beneficial because these were people who, who gave news who bought expertise who bought skills who bought a culture who bought ideas and they were constantly moving around and they were mature because they met different types of people, different conditions, different environments. And so they were hearing information in a far more detailed manner in, in, and the way they were moving that information around. And I think that that's underestimated to some degree because of today's world where information can reach you so fast. There's somebody can, you know, there's a difference between sending someone a, a, a a, an article that you've read over WhatsApp and somebody sitting with you and talking to you and debating it and discussing it and, and shaping your character and you argue and you yell and you scream and then you hug each other and you leave. I mean, that form of intellectual inquiry is far more natural but um, beneficial to making the nuanced thinker. And this is what they would have practiced. Imagine what they were doing all the time. And imagine having a domain like that, or a Muslim world like that. You know, in that sense, I mean, this, this restriction of freedom of movement has been a huge problem for many scholars. Making it expensive in regards to freedom of movement has become very difficult for scholars. The idea of, of having these sedentary lifestyles in the major metropolises have made it very difficult for people to be scholars. And in that sense, we're diminishing ilm as a form of ibadah over the, the natural um, desire of this dunya by wanting a career in academia. Uh, not only academia, but any other field, you know? Uh, I'm an academic, I accept that, so. <laughs> okay, John, thank you very much. That's been, uh, you know, a great answer to the question. So, um, so coming back to the starting point, coming back to where we start, I think it's been sort of like obvious why Muslims around the world uh, should show an interest in Ottoman studies. Mm -hmm. and, 
Do you think that autonomous studies should, by and large, conducted in Istanbul, or it could be done in anywhere, anywhere else, like around the world? Would that be Look, a, autonomous studies? Autonomous studies should can be done anywhere, but Arch Istanbul is a center. Archival. Istanbul should be a center. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why not? I mean, this is this is this was the capital city of the Ottomans for God knows how long, you know. But it shouldn't only be Istanbul. They should be teaching Ottoman studies in Cairo. They should be teaching Ottoman studies in Beirut. They should be teaching Ottoman studies in every province of the ex-Ottoman domains. It's their heritage. It's their culture. Like for not teaching Ottoman studies in Cairo, well, what, what are you doing? Like. You, what are you talking? I understand this, you know, and creating these TV shows that are anti-Ottoman. To some degree, you're diminishing your own historical past. Yep. You're diminishing your own understanding of your own historical past. You're traumatizing your own identity, for crying out loud, by not understanding the wonderful things that happened in your period at that time. So this is bizarre for me. Of course, there were problems. We know this. There yep. were wars and so forth. Nobody's denying that. But what I'm saying is to not learn it. Is, is, is a problem for me. So, um, but Istanbul should be a center as far as I'm concerned. Um, it should be a center, it is a center, but it should be a center where it invites people from around the world to know its history better. Yeah, and I think once again, going back to Isofia, this is an opportunity for us as Ottoman historians. As Ottoman historians, it's an opportunity to say that Istanbul ought to be a center for Ottoman studies. You know, so why not? That is true. Recently, Yildar Ortaylı, who's also one of the, you know, um, authorities in Ottoman history, has uh, made, has known to be made, to, to have made the same claim regarding the uh, Ottoman studies. And he said, mm -hmm. Istanbul should be the center because mm -hmm. archival data and everything and the history is here. It's here. here. And that is, uh, I, it, it, as a person who's trained in Western academia, it's, it's still um, mind-boggling for me that the best resources for Ottoman studies are in Western academia. <laughs> when, you know, I, today I, I took my friend out and like this city is Ottoman history. Okay. It's everywhere, you know? Like, okay, I know I keep picking the Hagia Sophia issue, but I'll tell you the other thing about Hagia Sophia. When people say, why should Hagia Sophia be a Jami? Hagia Sophia was the Jami. All of these jamis are built on that jami. That building is what all of these buildings you're looking at are built on. So the idea that, you know, we have too many mosques, why do we need another mosque? That is the mosque. That is the model. That is the symbol. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it, it should be understood. Uh, it's, it's quite straightforward. So, I find it surprising. I'm not trying to annoy people, but I'm just, you know, understand the history of this culture in the city in that sense. And this is a center. So right. um, more, more power to people coming here and studying Ottoman history. Okay, Jam, thank you very much for um, these fruitful insights. Um, no worries. Would you, would you like to make some you know, last remarks? Would you like to uh, advise anything to our listeners regarding like, you know, regarding anything uh, except I... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. look, you know what, look, honestly speaking, the only reason why I use ISOF as an example is because we talk about things being instructive and relevant. And one of the things that, it's a hot topic right now and people want to know. Um, but what it's done, I hope, is, is, is put Ottoman history back on the map. At least, you know, people can come to the recognition that there's a lot about the history of this region they don't know. 
but I'm not just going to talk about that. Um, you know, um, there's a huge misconception in terms of the Balkans. There's a misconception about the Arab world. There's a huge misconception about parts of North Africa. I mean, there's so much about the Ottoman domains that we don't know. There's so much, there's so much um, what I can say local history that should take place that can help us. Uh, so I remember speaking to a Palestinian academic on Ottoman studies about Jerusalem. And there was so much local history on Jerusalem during the Ottoman period, which was so important in terms of us understanding how the domains were functioning in that context. So um, I, I'm looking for more and more people, local peoples that live in this region to invest in that because not only do they, does it mean they invest in their identity, but then they can propel that to the rest of us because it was a multi-ethnic domain. It was mm. a pluralistic domain. So we need all of this. Um, look, as a historian, I, I just want people to understand their history better. And I said this, in, when, when I was talking about the Quran, one of the important points I made about the Quran is because Allah Ta'ala continues, he says, and, and remember, and I, I remember writing that, Allah Ta'ala keeps saying, and remember, and remember. Remember what? I wasn't there. So this is an interesting rhetorical style, yeah. which is, and don't forget, is what basically Allah is saying. He doesn't want us to forget about these particular moments in, in the past. And he chose specific moments in the past that he felt that it was necessary for us not to forget. And that is an important yardstick then uh, for people to understand that it's important not to forget particular moments in history uh, and uh, to know those moments, even though you weren't there. And for 600 years of history not to be part of our collective memory, I think that's a travesty, the highest order. Okay, yeah. So I, I I one last thing, I think us here in Turkey should be doing more to project that to people outside. If people want to know today. People are asking, they want to know. They want to know more. So we need to, to be able to, we should be helping Muslims outside and non-Muslims as well learn Ottoman Turkish. We should be teaching Ottoman Turkish to as many people as possible. We should make it interesting. We should make it vibrant. We should make it accessible. Um, I'm sure Muslims will be willing to learn Ottoman Turkish if we had programs around the other parts of the world and say, we're going to do Ottoman Turkish. Yeah. I, I, I don't see that as a problem. Definitely, it will be a great opportunity like to engage yeah. with this tradition as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, Jim, thank you very much. It's been really great uh, podcast. No problem. Uh, no problem. So also, our listeners will probably, uh, you know, enjoy it while listening. I hope. I hope so. <laughs> I um, hope I haven't said something to upset them. I, I'm definitely sure they're just gonna, you know, enjoy it. So, uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. You can you can also go and visit uh, podcast.isr.org.tr. Uh, you yeah. can also uh, send us your views and you know criticism or your advice is anything that's relevant to, uh, for us to improve this podcast channel. Mm -hmm. And you can also listen to this podcast in Isar Podcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, YouTube Podcast, and Google Podcast. So we wish you a uh, pleasant day. Thank you very much. Thank you.